The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 93 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all the opinions expressed in the show are my own. I'm not the my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to or resource of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I remind our listeners, you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at the very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to this Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So I chuckled there because I just my, my voice has been cracking a little bit the last couple episodes, and it just did it again. So, you know, bear with me, folks. I know I, I sound like a, a young man, I guess, but uh, it, it happens when you're coaching a lot and you're just out there yelling with the kids and everything and having fun. And, and you start to lose your voice, but so just bear with me a little bit on that. Last week's was a great show. Last week's episode was a great show, folks. Not only because my co-host, my partner in crime, Andy Manila, was at the helm, but it's always a great show when 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 we get someone like the president and CEO of SSIC, John Frazzini, on. He comes on to talk about his special announcement with Secure Systems Innovation Corporation. We've had these guys on before, and in the convergence of the insurance industry and the cybersecurity industry, which is really big business, folks. This is like big business. It's really important. There's a lot of money here, right? So there's a lot of money. There's an exchange of a lot of money in the industry that's going on because of this convergence. And it's really interesting stuff, especially if you're business oriented and not just tech oriented. So Andy's exclusive TS7 radio interview with John Frazzini highlighted the way cyber risk will be measured into the foreseeable future. And I really believe that to be true. Frazzini talked about how the insurance industry is postured to disrupt the cybersecurity industry as well as his company's efforts to understand the effectiveness of cybersecurity controls, including how a company can accurately measure their return on security investment, right? And so I really believe that this is a possibility, and I'll get into that more in a minute. But Frazzini also talks about how he sees businesses managing cyber risk into the future the various models and approaches that seek to understand cyber risk in financial terms, which we talk about often, and if, if it's now possible to understand the impacts of cyber incidents before they happen. So, and this has been a big topic on this show. If you listen to the show often, you know we speak about this, and I'm very passionate about it. And in my view, there are really two sides to this argument. One that generally comes from the technologist's point of view in the industry that say, hey, there's no way to measure your return on security investment relative to the spend on technologies and resources put in place to mitigate cybersecurity risk. And then 
there are the business people in the information security space, which I consider myself to be part of that latter group, who think, although extremely difficult, all right, and I will acknowledge that it is extremely difficult, you can put a financial number on mitigating controls relative to the financial consequences an incident can have on an organization if, and I say this, only if you truly understand and have an accurate analysis of the material risk to your company. And it all comes back to speaking from a common lexicon of risk and running an intelligence-led shop, knowing yourself, knowing your adversary, being threat-focused, and implementing that constant learning model. Okay, and we talk about this a lot. Um, something I learned, uh, very important, I learned from Tom Harrington, one of the best in the business, and um, it works, folks. It works. And I think that what SSIC does fits right into the intelligence-led approach. They are revolutionizing the way companies manage cyber risk. They really are. And Frazzini wrapped up his interview by explaining how companies will have to adjust their strategies to become more effective in managing and successfully mitigating cyber risk to their environments. So this kind of thought leadership has to come from the top, folks. So especially if you're a senior executive in the cybersecurity industry and you haven't heard last week's show, I highly recommend you listen to it, folks. It's definitely worth an hour of your time. Please go take a look. It's probably on, on the top of your favorite playback medium right now. That's the president and CEO of Secure Systems Innovation Corporation, John Frazzini, talking about the convergence of insurance and cyber risk on last week's episode. That's episode number 92 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new TF7 radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage, and you can find all the TF7 radio episodes right at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is the most impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world. And of course, we have our news section as well, where you can check out all the latest cybersecurity news and news on Task Force 7 Radio. And you can even write comments on the different news articles and topics that we're talking about, which is always a lot of fun. So we're on at least 11 different playback mediums now. We're everywhere, folks. We made it really easy for you to find them all, too. Just hit the subscribe button at the top of the right of the homepage, and you will see your entire selection of playback mediums. And most importantly, you can subscribe to our show right from the TF7 Radio website which quite honestly, that's the best way to stay connected to the TF7 family. This way, you get all the TF7 radio updates right from the site, and as the site gets more robust, you'll get notified about TF7 extras and encore episodes. And look, we just posted one last week that did great. Uh, it, it did fantastic. It got huge numbers. And I can't wait to see what is going on uh, with, with the future here because we're making a lot of decisions and we're having a lot of discussions about how we're going to move forward with the website and what uh, TF7 radio version 2 looks like. And uh, we're going to do it at the right time. We're going to take our time. We're going to take our time and we're going to do it right. I promise you. So check us out, folks. www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. So there's breaking news every day in the cybersecurity world and there is so much going on. We're going to keep you up to date with an episode filled with the latest and greatest of what is happening in the cybersecurity industry today. So we're going to focus on the news. And first on my list is the big news last week as it was reported that Russia's FSB, 
got hacked. Yeah, the FSB got hacked. That's right. It seems that no one is safe anymore. No one. No one is safe. Everybody is at risk. Everybody needs to pay attention. So according to a July 20th article in Forbes magazine by Zach Doffman titled, Russia's Secret Intelligence Agency Hacked, Largest Data Breach in Its History, there are a lot of red faces in Moscow this week. Literally, literally red faces. People are mad, right? People are upset. And as hackers have successfully targeted FSB, that's Russia's Federal Security Service, for those of you who don't know, they managed to steal 7.5 terabytes of data. It's just, you know, it's a lot of data. And that comes from a major contractor. And they exposed secret FSB projects to de-anonymize Tor browsing, scrape social media, and help the state split its internet off from the rest of the world. So this is really interesting stuff at the very least. I don't know if it's too much of a shock, but it's very interesting. And the data was passed to mainstream media outlets for publishing. So right to the rest of the world immediately. Boom. So for those of you who are not overly familiar with who the FSB is, the FSB is Russia's primary security agency. And they have some similarities with the FBI in the United States and the MI5 in the UK. Sometimes people compare them. But, it, but its remit stretches way beyond domestic intelligence to include electronic surveillance overseas and significant intelligence gathering oversight for Russia. And it's its primary successor agency to the infamous KGB, right? Everybody knows the KGB from the older movies, at least the older folks like I, I am do, I guess. Maybe the younger folks maybe are not familiar with that term. But they report directly to Russia's president, so it has a much broader scope, and, and, the remit, and their mission is kind of uh, much more, uh, I guess, broader than the FBI, for instance. So a week ago, about, excuse me, on July 13th, a hacking group under the name O-Virus, or, you know, some of you, I don't know if this is an O or zero, forgive me, you know, I didn't determine it before I started to, to do the show today, but it's actually spelled with, a, with, a, with an O and then a V and then a one and then an R and then a U and a dollar sign. So it's sort of in the cyber speak, right? That this group had reportedly breached SciTech. So this is a major FSB contractor working on a range of live and exploratory internet projects. And then, of course, they left a smiling Yoba face on SciTech's homepage alongside pictures purporting to showcase the breach because that's what hackers do, right? So the hacking group then passed the data itself to the larger hacking group, Digital Revolution, which is a little bit easier to talk about, easier to pronounce, which shared the files with various media outlets and the headlines with Twitter taunting the FSB that the agency should maybe rename one of its breached activities, Project Colander. So BBC Russia broke the news uh, that this uh, new group uh, had breached SciTech servers and shared details of contention cyber projects in projects that including social media scraping, that includes Facebook and LinkedIn, and I'm sure a lot of you belong to a lot of those uh, social media uh, outlets right now. So they were all targeted. And they also had targeted collection and the de-anonymization of users of the Tor browser. And those people who use Tor usually want to stay anonymous. So if they're not anonymous, that's usually a problem for them. So that's why they want to find out who these people are and what they're doing and what, they're, you know, what they're, uh, uh, their activity is on the internet. And the BBC described the breach as possibly the largest data leak in the history of Russian intelligence services. That's a pretty big statement to make. Uh, considering the, the the people that we're talking about. So, as well as defacing SciTech's homepage with a Yoba face, the group also detailed the project names exposed, and some of the names were like Arion and Relation and Hervnia, 
alongside the names of the SciTech project managers that actually did it, which was probably really annoying to uh, um, SciTech. I'm, I'm sure it was. So the BBC report claims that no actual state secrets were, were exposed. So the projects themselves appear to be a mix of this social media scraping targeted collection against internet users seeking to anonymize their activities and data collection targeting Russian enterprises and projects that seem to relate to Russia's ongoing initiative to build an option to separate their internal internet from the World Wide Web. So the BBC claims that Cytex projects were mostly contracted with the military unit 71330, that's part of FSB's 16th directorate, which handles signals intelligence. And the same group accused of emailing spyware to Ukrainian intelligence officers back in 2015, if you recall. So this Nautilus S, the the Tor de-anonymization project, was actually launched in 2012 under the remit of Russia's Kvant Research Institute. And I think I I think I spelled that correctly or said it correctly. It's Kvant uh, Research Institute. So which comes under FSB's remit. So Russia has been looking for ways to compromise nodes within Tor's structure to either prevent off-grid communications or to intercept those communications. They don't like anybody talking out of school over there, right? So they know exactly who you are and what you're doing, and they don't like you to have any kind of capability to uh, anonymize yourself. So none of this is really big, big news. Um, but the big news, I guess, is the fact that it happened, right? So it's believed that some progress has been made under this project too, and that the digital revolution claims to have hacked the, the Kavant Research Institute before. And so they said, look, we, we know about this. This has been going on. So the preparatory activities for splitting off a Russian internet, so to speak, follow Russian President Vladimir Putin signing into law provisions for the stable operation of the Russian internet, nicknamed RUNET, go figure, right, in case it is disconnected from the global infrastructure of the World Wide Web. So the law set in, in, in train plans uh, for an alternative domain name system for Russia in the event that it is disconnected from the World Wide Web, or one assumes, in the event that its politicians deem disconnection to be beneficial, right? So who knows, right? I mean, obviously, right? So internet service providers would be compelled to disconnect from any foreign servers relying on Russia's DNS instead. So Hoffman notes that, and I have to agree with him, that the information gleaned from the the hack itself is not necessarily earth-shattering, as I mentioned before, and much of it was already known and, and and inspected. And if you're one of those people who actually take an interest in this kind of stuff, and you do a lot of reading on other nation-state activities in the cyber realm, especially from a, a national security perspective, this isn't going to come as a complete shock to you. You're not going to fall off the chair. But what is really interesting is the breach itself. And that's what's really turning heads, right? Because the fact that someone was able to breach the FSB, one of the most secret organizations in the world, with presumably some of the most sophisticated, well-versed technologists in the world, protecting their digital assets is really big news in my opinion. And of course, this also highlights the threats companies continue to face around third-party risk. You know, this is as we always talk about uh, third-party risk as one of the top three material risks uh, uh, that we see uh, belonging to basically all businesses and a generally broad view over the Fortune 500 and even, even government agencies, as you can see from this instance, along with the insider threat and destructive malware. These are big material risks, you know, destructive malware associated with phishing and ineffective patching operations, because it would seem, even for the heavies out there, contractors remain the weak link in the chain, not only for the world's premier intelligence agencies, but for everyone, everyone, including other government agencies and Fortune 500 companies right here in the United States. So Hoffman also notes that just last week, a former NSA contractor was jailed in the U.S. for stealing secrets 
over a two-decade uh, period, and we all know what went down with the Edward Snowden deal. So, it, look, it's just a big problem. It's a huge problem. I mean, uh, Snowden's just a poster child for it, but it's happening all the time on much different scales across the industry. And it appears Digital Revolution passed the information to journalists without anything being edited. They removed or, or changed it little, right? little is, and little is known right now about this new group uh, that conducted this hack. And the group has not come forward with any comments, so no one knows too much more about them, at least publicly. I'm sure there's intelligence agencies around the world banging against the internet to find these people and probably know who they are. And I think the biggest question coming from this news is who they are and how soon is it going to be made public and you know, maybe who's supporting them, if anyone, right? I'm sure the, the Russians would want to know that. One thing's for sure, you can be certain that the FSB is hunting them down as we speak. And that has to, has to give them a, a warm and fuzzy feeling all over. <laughs> so, all right, folks, we've got to transition to commercial break right here. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family right away. For any queries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited Ford network. We're going to solve some problems together, folks. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with more cybersecurity breaking news. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover life cycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization 
organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Synet, S-I-N-E-T. We're not your typical security vendor. In fact, the script for this ad was written by an engineer, not a marketing guru. Because at Sock Prime, we're focused on features that matter to our users. Our threat detection marketplace has over 30,000 cross-platform SIM and EDR rules. Our downloadable Sigma, Yara, and Snort detections can be deployed with just a few clicks. And our map to the MITRE ATT&CK framework, enabling quicker and more strategic detection. With support from Sock Prime's veteran team and our community of contributors, we bridge the blue team skills gap and cover emerging threats with daily releases of new content. Nearly three quarters of the threat detection marketplace is free to download. Register for free at tdm.sockprime.com with promo code radio 2019 to receive one free key to unlock premium content. That's tdm.socprime.com. Promo code radio 2019. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm going to kick off this segment with, a, with another great article that I saw from Zach Hoffman that he actually posted today. It was today that uh, it's titled, Warning as Iranian state hackers target LinkedIn users with dangerous new malware. Now, just for the record, I, you know, I don't know Zach. We never met before. I never spoke to him. I know I'm covering him a little bit on, on this, uh, this episode. But, uh, you know, I, I like to follow a lot of his articles. He writes some really interesting stuff. And I'd like to meet him sometime. So, but just, I'd just like to say that, I mean, that I'm, I'm covering him two thousand in a row. I don't know Zach, but he's writing some good stuff. And, and uh, I enjoy uh, reading his work. So that's, that's all Zach Hoffman from uh, Forbes magazine, folks. And anyway, I think this, is, uh, this article is of, of interest to a lot of our listeners out there because, what, for, well, for one primary reason, you know, so far I think you know, uh, the, 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 our tremendous TF7 audience has been built solely on my own personal social media presence with, with no real digital marketing investment or marketing outreach of any kind whatsoever, really, for that matter. And which we're certainly going to do uh, eventually. We're going to aggressively launch uh, a serious marketing campaign when we go to TF7 2.0, if you know what I mean. But it's, it's, <laughs> excuse me, it's safe to assume that a lot of you listening out there in cyberspace or on, or on these social media sites like LinkedIn and Facebook and such, and it's also safe to assume that if you're listening to this show right now, you have a great deal of intellectual curiosity. You like to learn things and that you're also watching other news channels, and you're aware of the growing tensions in the Middle East uh, around the Strait of Hormuz and, and the Iranian government and everything else, right? So these escalations, of course, are multifaceted. 
all right? No longer do conflicts just occur in the kinetic world. And no longer do they just include military targets. Logical cyber defensive and especially offensive capabilities, especially offensive capabilities, because playing offense in the cyber world is much, much easier than playing defense. Anybody in this business knows that, right? Especially because of how the internet is built and how the applications we use every day are built and are still built today. Unfortunately, they're a major part of, of today's world. And this was evident back when the Iranians were DDoSing America's banks uh, and attacking our financial critical infrastructure. That got next to no response from the United States at that time, or at least no known response. I mean, there's a few things that happened, but nothing of really significance. And it was, a lot of people were dissatisfied about it. But civilians are part of the target package in the cyberspace now. And Iran has a history of attacking the United States and vice versa. I'm not going to rule that out. Right, look, let's not forget Natanz, right? Natanz, right? Stuxnet, right? Even though I'll note that the United States and Israel have not taken any responsibility for those attacks, but in some say Israel's acted alone, all right? Uh, and not with the United States, uh, I guess, what, not permission, but cooperation or um, they weren't complicit, let's put it that way. But the point being that Iran has been on the receiving end of cyber attacks as well, not just the, the civilian population over there too, some of their uh, other targets. But so Hoffman reports that uh, the cyber warfare situation is becoming, quote unquote, an interchangeable battlefield tool, which is obviously, uh, I agree with uh, wholeheartedly, and it has been evidenced uh, many times, and it's nothing really new at this point. But so an attack in one domain can lead to retaliation in another, and so on, and so on, and so on. And the catalyst has been this continuing escalation of tensions between the United States and its allies, allies and, and Iran. And of course, I, I agree with them on that. Anybody who's watching the news lately can see what's going on. By the way, what a weak response from the UK. I mean, they're just taking their ships over there, and they're just not doing anything. I mean, I just see that as weak, and I'm sure a lot of other people do too, but I, I don't know what's going on. I, I, I would imagine that our president wouldn't react the same way. I mean, maybe he would, I don't know, but um, I don't think he's, I don't think so. Um, but uh, w hopefully we won't have to find out. Um, he also states that Iran understands that retaliation against the U.S. military in the cyber domain might be akin to throwing rocks at a tank, but it can hit a vast and underprotected U.S. corporate sector at will. Which, look, folks, you know, I don't know if I subscribe to that. I, I don't know if I subscribe to that to imply that the cybersecurity posture of the United States military is far superior to the cybersecurity posture of the private sector. That might be a little bit far-fetched to me, I mean, in my opinion. I mean, it, well, it, especially if you break it down by critical infrastructure or sector, right? I mean, it's different in each sector, I think. And if you look at the ISACs and the maturity of the ISACs, they, they vary drastically from sector to sector from each, you know, each one of the 16 critical infrastructures we have. So I think, you know, it's, it's definitely, I think there's 16, 16 or seven, 16, I think my memory's going, but so I, I think it, it just, it's, it varies, right? So maybe we should do a show on this and unpack this a little bit further. I'm still debating it for several reasons, but I think I have to, you know, I look, I have to think about it a little bit more, right? Cause it's a very sensitive subject. And, and, but the point is, to imply that the cybersecurity posture of the United States military is far superior to the cybersecurity posture of the private sector in the United States is a little bit a stretch for me. It's a little bit of a stretch. And, per, and for the purpose of this conversation, I just want to keep that in mind. Now, now Hoffman notes that two weeks after the U.S. Cyber Command hit Iran's command and control structure in the aftermath of the downing of a U.S. surveillance drone came a warning 
that an Iranian-led hack was targeting the millions of unpatched Microsoft Outlook systems, hence the pivot to attack civilian targets once again. So now, the U.S. Uh, cybersecurity firm FireEye, everybody knows FireEye, it's FireEye, FireEye. Uh, they're killing it over there. They, they, everybody knows who they are. Has warned of a malicious phishing campaign that it has attributed to the Iranian-linked APT-34. Uh, so, who's at the, and the APT-34 has this activity that's uh, involved in oil rig and green bug and a whole bunch of other things. If you do some research on them, you'll, you'll, you'll see it. So the campaign has been targeting LinkedIn users with plausible but bogus invitations to join a professional network in email attachments laced with malware that seeks to infect systems with a hidden backdoor and steal data and credentials. I don't think this is anything new. It's just on a different medium. It's on a different vector, and they think they can fool you because they're not coming through in their email. They're on a professional network. So this is one of the reasons that many companies don't let brick-and-mortar personnel, aside from maybe their HR employees, that are in the company to access LinkedIn. And I see other companies that do. They allow their business folks to access LinkedIn, which I don't think is a good idea. And this is the reason why. And same reason that people shouldn't have email privileges that don't need them. If you go to companies right now and you look at the email privileges and you look at the cyber hygiene, basic cyber hygiene, there's no reason for someone to have external email privileges if, it doesn't, if it's not necessary for, for them to do their job. Plain and simple. If it's not necessary for you to do your job, shouldn't have access to external email, period, right? So a lot of these hardline policies aren't being drafted. And I think, you know, a lot of this comes down to basic cyber hygiene, eliminating risk and speaking from that common lexicon of risk. And people just um, sometimes, I think, dismiss it. But according to FireEye, they had a blog post published on uh, last Thursday, I think it was July 18th, the campaign targets specific industries that are clearly of interest to the regime in Tehran, right? So this group, this is a quote, this group has conducted broad targeting across a variety of industries operating in the Middle East. However, we believe APT34's strongest interest is gaining access to financial, energy, and government entities. <clears throat> so then, you know, Big just said right there, government entities. This doesn't mean that, I, I, don't, like, I don't see how they're just so much stronger than the public sector, but hey, you know, I don't know. So in the reference case, Cited by FireEye, the counterfeit invitations masqueraded as coming from a Cambridge University researcher with a plausible URL for the download of malicious attachments. Now, quote, the targeted employee conversed with Rebecca Watts, quote unquote, allegedly employed as research staff at the University of Cambridge. And this is not the first time we've seen APT34 utilize academia and or a job offer conversations in their various campaigns. So they're, they're posing as this person from academia or they're posing as this other person offering a job or speaking to someone about employment and of course it piques people's interest and they're more likely to click on the link and maybe or click on the attachment, which, which delivers the payload, the malicious payload, right? So in exposing this campaign, FireEye identified new malware variants that target infected systems to collect information through a hidden backdoor installed to facilitate data exchange. There was also a tool to steal credentials stored in a Windows vault. And this is notable because the nefarious cyber attacks on high-profile targets, including government resources and critical infrastructure, rely on credentials to open real-world vulnerabilities. It's a chain, and you target one link at a time. So LinkedIn is seen as a solid hunting ground for APT34, given that so many of us will link and engage without the same level of skepticism. We might apply to an email from an unknown sender. And FireEye describes social media platforms as, quote, is an effective delivery mechanism if a targeted organization is focused heavily 
on email defenses to prevent intrusions. So some cybersecurity folks might not be thinking in terms of their cyber hygiene and email privileges. Sure, they might get rid of your external email privileges if you don't have a need for them, a business need, right, in your company, but they might not be thinking about LinkedIn. So it's just another way to try to get in to social engineer their way in to try to get someone to, to click on that attachment, download that malicious payload and get access to your systems, your IP and your critical data. So I think, you know, we have to think from a 360 view, right? Um, Hoffman said in his article that he said that he thinks it's a sort of unsurprising and it's really not a shock, but it's yet another example of Iran turning to non-military targets as it continues its cyber war against the West. The activity, quote unquote, and this is from FireEye, is a well-known Iranian threat actor utilizing their tried and true techniques to breach targeted organizations. And so it's kind of interesting that the average person sitting home watching cable news, looking at what's going on uh, with Iran and the escalated tensions they're having with the United States and their allies, could have a direct effect on their, their life. And in this way, this could happen to them uh, in, in some type of relation, indirectly or directly, whatever, to the, in, the, the incidents that they're seeing on TV. So it's only the well-informed uh, citizen. It's the well-informed citizen that's going to you know, take uh, uh, precautions. And I'm not talking, talking from a business perspective now. I'm just talking about people who just use LinkedIn at home and access it from their home computer, right? So if you use social media, please, please be sure. You know, give the same scrutiny to anyone sending you attachments as you would on your personal or business email address. It's just a matter of changing mindsets, right? It's a matter of educating the public and getting it. It's a cultural shift. We talked this in the previous episodes, right? It's a matter of having that cultural shift in everybody's mind where security is everyone's responsibility. So last month, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency within DHS issued a blanket warning about a recent rise in malicious cyber activity directed at the United States uh, and the, or the United States industries and government agencies by Iranian regime actors and proxies using destructive wiper attacks looking to do much more than just steal data and steal money. So the, the CISA warned that these efforts are often enabled through common tactics like spear phishing and password spraying and credential stuffing, things we talk about all the time. And what might start as an account compromise where you think you might lose data can quickly become a situation where you lost your whole network. And alas, this is why we put destructive malware in the top three material risk firms face today because the goals of the adversary have shifted or the time that they decide to execute on their goal could change at any second and any time. And knowing this is part of the intelligence-led strategy we often speak about. So it's not just understanding root cause analysis anymore, folks. And it drives me crazy when I hear people say this. And the cybersecurity executives out there who still subscribe to the old mantra that RCA is king. And I, I got I to gotta say, I, I really believe they're out of touch. I disagree. I think they're out of touch. That's just my opinion. All right. And I think they need to change. I think they need to change their strategy and their thought process to an intelligence-led one. And also, last month, the National Security Agency confirmed to AP that, quote, there have been serious issues with malicious Iranian cyber actions in the past. In these times of heightened tensions, it is appropriate for everyone to be alert to signs of Iranian aggression in cyberspace and ensure appropriate defenses are in place. So Farai further stated that, and this is a quote from them, we suspect that this will not be the last time APT34 brings new tools to the table. Threat actors are often reshaping their TTPs to evade detection mechanisms, especially if the target is, a highly, is highly desired. And, you know, TTPs, you know, tactics, techniques, procedures, you know, tools and tactics, things like that, right? So 
for, for these reasons, we recommend organizations remain vigilant in their defenses and remember to view their in, environmentally holistically when it comes to information security. And I think that just means, hey, look, get your head out of the sand. And this goes back to when I was a Secret Service agent, right? You have to come at cybersecurity or any kind of security uh, practice from a 360 uh, approach, right? From a 360 degree approach. You have to look at it 360 degrees. And this includes social media in, in this case, right? This just includes the fact that, yes, you know, if your employees do have it, uh, uh, they have to make sure that, you know, they're not clicking on things and, and, the, and the right thing to do, unless they leave LinkedIn for their, uh, uh, for their job, they should get rid of it. And that goes for any social media, to be honest with me, any type of delivery mechanism uh, of malware into the, into the organization and, and the average employee doesn't need it, just get rid of it. Cyber hygiene, come on. So, uh, another one of my favorite topics I want to talk about is uh, it would look one of my favorite news agencies uh, in cybersecurity uh, is look the New York Times. New York Times, say what you want about them, about you know whatever politics and everything. I don't even want to get into all that crap. But you know, from a cybersecurity perspective, these guys are money. Like they 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 have it together. I mean, I get I get a lot of information from the New York Times in terms of cybersecurity. Raymond Zong wrote an article in the New York Times dated July 18th titled. Uh, Huawei, uh, Huawei is a security threat. It's a question, and then Vietnam isn't taking any chances, and that's the name of the article. And it's an article about Vietnam and Huawei, and <clears throat> we talk about it a lot here. The article notes that as the world splits among the U.S.-China fault lines, right, everyone's, you know, fighting over who are they going to side with, China or the United States in this, in this battle, and we talked about it a lot, and I want to regurgitate the whole thing about Huawei, because if you listen to the show, you know the, the situation. But the telecom companies in Vietnam appear to be quietly avoiding the Chinese tech giant in their 5G plans. And in my opinion, they're the smart ones. I mean, apparently someone in the Vietnamese government understands the risk that China and Huawei poses the country's entire critical infrastructures, except, which is mind-boggling to me, the ones you would think would understand the risk. And, and that is some of the American allies like Britain and Germany who have signaled that they are unlikely to back Washington's efforts to stop countries from working with the Chinese technology giant, which, you know, in, in some ways is really puzzling to me, right? I understand the opportunity from a technology and financial perspective, but you got to have a broader view. And this is what happens in the, in the United States all the time. It's almost like the CEOs not listening to the CISOs telling them, you know, what to do and what kind of strategies to implement to protect their firms are just not listening. And people aren't listening. It's the same situation here. Now, the, the American government calls uh, Huawei a Trojan horse for Beijing cyber spies, right? Um, in countries like Australia, though, you know, they've barred the firm from building its next generation 5G cell phone uh, network in their country. And even though its economy depends on China's appetite for natural resources, uh, they've said no way right now. And, but, and here's the flip side of that coin. You got places like South Korea and the Philippines have not, despite past frictions with China, uh, done this. But all, all this leading to a very confusing environment when it comes to Huawei and the threats and dangers the Chinese company poses to American interests. And I got to say, it is kind of confusing because the, the people that you think would say, oh, yeah, naturally, that's, not, that's a no-brainer. We're not going to you know, give this company who has a history or at least there's been accusations at the very least of them you know, putting backdoor tools and, and other spying technologies inside their platform to use broadly across all their critical infrastructures. Probably not the best idea. And at, and at, some, at some point in time, even if you don't have definitive, I mean definitive proof the risk is enormous, especially considering Chinese government strategy over the 
the, the last 20 some years and the next 50 years, right? If you're educated about this, you know that they want world domination. They want to be the world's only superpower. They're, they have committed massive IP data theft against the United States to achieve this goal. I don't think that anything will stop them. They're doubling and tripling their Navy at, at record speeds. Right? And they're, they're spending all the money that they're stealing from us to build their military and their financial infrastructure. I mean, look at pictures of Hong Kong 20 years ago and, and, and look at or other, any other cities in China 20 years ago and, and, and right today. It doesn't even look like the same place, right? I mean, it's, it's, the, the growth is massive. And it's, it's not, in my opinion, come from uh, legitimate means in a lot of sense, you know, the way they manipulate currencies and so on and so forth. So, look, but then there's Vietnam. <laughs> right, and at first glance, the, the, the you know the the writer writes in in, in uh, the article that it's a very fast developing nation that might just might seem to be a natural customer for Huawei, and its economy is entwined with China's, and, and Beijing has embraced the country's Communist Party leaders in Hanoi as ideological brethren. But Vietnam's leading mobile carriers appear to be keeping Huawei out of their five G plans, even if the government's fear of incensing in Beijing most likely prevents them from saying so, right? They don't want to get, they don't want to say, they don't want to say anything to them. They don't want to say the way this is what we're doing because it's going to make everybody mad over there and you don't want to make Papa mad, right? So let me get this right. Some of the countries most tied to the Chinese government and economy and know the Chinese the best are steering very clear of our way. Well, why is that? I wonder why that is, right? Well, all around the world, the Trump administration's assault on the Chinese firm has turned the purchase of telecommunications equipment from a business decision into a geopolitical one in some respects, in some respects, right? Um, and, and, and I think a test of national allegiances to Washington or to Beijing, which is very interesting and no doubt the decisions by these countries will have great consequences to the ability for the United States to trust current intelligence channels that have been set up for years since World War II, right? Some of the most trusted networks in the world, including the 5i network, right? It could affect these, these, these networks and our ability to continue operating in a way that's been very, very helpful to us in the past and very important to our national security and our way of life. This is important stuff. This is very important stuff. So in Southeast Asia, which has been transformed by Chinese money, Huawei has been widely welcomed. The firm opened a 5G testing station in Thailand this year. Indonesia's communications minister recently told Reuters that the government could not be paranoid about Huawei, while Malaysia's prime minister has said this country will use the company's technology, quote, as much as possible. I guess they just love being transparent. Um, in Vietnam, though, major mobile carriers have explored 5G collaborations with Ericsson and Nokia, but not with Huawei. The largest among them, Viatel, does not use Huawei equipment in its current 4G network. Uh, though it has no problem using Chinese technology in some of the other countries where its local subsidiaries provide 4G services, including Cambodia, Laos, and Peru. So observers expect that Vietnamese carriers will err on the side of caution when they sign commercial 5G agreements. China and Vietnam fought a brief but bloody war 40 years ago, and Hanoi has watched warily as its northern neighbors' wealth and military ambitions have grown ever since. Right? We were just talking about that, right? So get this. The world, the whole world, this is a quote, the whole world needs to be careful with China. This is from a, a major general uh, that is a former director of the Institute of Strategic Studies of, at the Vietnamese Ministry of Public Security, right? He says, if a superpower like America regards China as a cybersecurity threat, then of course, 
Vietnam has to too as well. And someone needs to set up the bat line from Vietnam to this guy's office to the UK and Germany because they don't seem to be getting the memo. They don't get it. I don't understand why. Maybe the Chinese government deleted off their systems before they could read it and replace it with a Chinese government love letter. I don't know, but something's going on. It doesn't seem right. And I guess a lot of this hasn't been made public into the, the, the content of the conversations, the discussions, the dialogue that's happening because, uh, you know, if we had more information, obviously we'd, we'd better understand the situation, but we don't. And so not too many people from the Vietnamese government and or its telecommunication companies were interested in talking about why Vietnam is not using Huawei. And after the New York Times secured a bunch of interviews with a bunch of senior, uh, senior officials over there, those interviews were constantly delayed. They were constantly delayed. They put them off. They call us out. Oh, we can't make it. I don't feel well, whatever. And then some, someone abruptly walked out when they finally did get it scheduled. The guy was like, hey, look, uh, you know, after he got some tough questions, he went to an aide and said, how long do I have to stay here? And he was like, oh, we're, we're dedicated to a whole hour. We're committed to an hour here. And he's like, no way am I doing that. And he bolted, right? He did even out of there. So an explanation from one Vietnamese official is this. Any indication that the Vietnamese government discriminates against the Chinese would be used as an excuse for the Chinese government to put more pressure on Vietnam, right? It's, 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 it's typical stuff. No matter, you know what? It's kind of funny. Whether you're on the playground as a kid or you're doing geo, world geopolitics at the highest levels, it's the same. The same. You don't want to get certain people. My, oh, this, this guy might hurt his feelings. This time that he can mad at me. He put pressure on me over here, right? It's all politics. And in my opinion, this is where the United States government has an opportunity to step in and gain some political ground here because of the recent trade war with China, the pressure the United States is putting on China. I think China's economy is not doing very well. Um, they're under an extraordinary amount of pressure, and the United States economy seems to be doing great. Some say better than it's ever been. And, you know, this doesn't fit in with China, the Chinese government plans. I can tell you, things aren't going the way uh, they thought they would go after this administration. Step. Yo, say what you want, right? Not get into politics or anything, but say what you want. But things aren't going the way China planned right now. If you look at the numbers, you know, there's a little, there's a little uh, you know, fly in the ointment, if you know what I mean. So we need to keep the pressure on in a variety of different ways. And the last thing we need to do, understanding the long-term goals and level of commitment that China has around becoming the world's only superpower and the role that cybersecurity plays in that, right? Then welcome a massive Chinese government intelligence gathering technology into your country to make their data and IP theft efforts just a little bit easier probably isn't the best idea in the world. I don't know. Call me wild. Call me crazy. That's what I think. Okay, folks, it's time to bounce up out of here, right? We got, a, we got, another, we got another short break to go to. We're going to hear from our sponsors. But don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more cybersecurity breaking news after these short messages. We'll be right back. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. 
Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I want to talk a little bit more in this segment about some cybersecurity breaking news out there. And I want to talk about the fact that I'm finding more and more issues with cybersecurity understanding at senior levels of an organization, especially big organizations. I mean, very respectable, large organizations. And I think this is true throughout uh, many different industries. And I'm just, I'm seeing some very surprising things. And um, I'm finding more and more to be true, that is the absolute ineptness in some cases of senior executives in the cybersecurity space to place competent, risk-oriented, business-minded information security professionals at the helm of the organization's cybersecurity department and to do it objectively. I'm seeing a problem. I'm not the only one. I'm starting to think more times than not that this is the case. I never thought that that was the case before. I really didn't. But I'm seeing some alarming things going on. And the article I want to talk about was written by Danny Palmer and appeared on July 15th on ZDNet. Um, And and it's titled, Cybersecurity, Is Your Boss Leaving Your Organization Vulnerable to Hackers? And it prefaces that a survey of security professionals found that over half, over half the majority believe management are ignoring advice designed to help them stay safe from cyber attacks. We mentioned it uh, and I referenced it in in the previous segment. Uh, So, Palmer found out that a new study has warned that CEOs and other senior board-level executives are exposing their organizations to cyber attacks and hackers because of a lack of awareness around cybersecurity. In research by cybersecurity company Red Seal, which, by the way, we have had the CEO of Red Seal, Ray Rothrock, on the show, which was great. If you want to check him out, I think it was episode number 55 of Task Force 7 Radio. Um, and he talks about digital resilience and he had a new book about, about digital resilience and how digital resilience is the answer 
to our cybersecurity woes. Very, very interesting stuff. Uh, you can hear the whole hour from him, by the way, from the executive. It's funny because you see one, one sentence uh, of, of quotes from these companies out there. But if you want to hear a whole hour of really good information from these companies and the executives who lead them, you can go to Task Force 7 Radio, you hear the whole hour. And that's just, that's, you know, you walk away with a lot more information, obviously, and uh, it's good stuff. So anyway, Red Seal surveys hundreds of senior IT and security professionals and found that many of these personnel believe there's a disconnect between the CEO and the information security team, which could be putting organizations at risk. So some, some, some information here. What's the numbers? Well, almost all security teams, 92% in this instance, set out specific plans to help protect their CEO from cyber attacks and data breaches. 54% of security personnel believe their CEO is ignoring these plans, completely just ignoring it. Like they're not even there. Like Casper the ghost, right? Potentially opening the door to cyber attacks. So one in 10 even went so far as to say decisions or actions made by the CEO or other high-level ranking management had actively put the cybersecurity of the business at risk, <laughs> while 14% said their CEO hasn't received any cybersecurity training or information whatsoever, right? They don't have, have no clue what they're talking about, right? So, let's look some more stats. 95% of those surveyed said they're concerned that poor cybersecurity of, consu of consumer Internet of Things devices means that smart homes can be hacked, but over a third, 38% to be exact, aren't aware of which connected devices their CEO uses when they're out of the office or at home. So the CEOs, they're well-paid people, they're more likely to have smart homes uh, that, are, that are sort of uh, obviously expensive, um, but no one knows what kind of risk they have uh, with the devices that they use, especially with the emergence of IoT. So this could potentially provide a new avenue for cyber attackers who want to conduct espionage, steal information, or even blackmail high-profile targets. Sort of commonsensical, right? So Mike Lloyd is the uh, CTO of Red Seal, and he was quoted as saying, smart devices compete on convenience and price. Security is usually an afterthought if it's addressed at all. Some popular smart devices like smart speakers compromise privacy even when worked working as intended, which is kind of scary when you think about it as the opportunity this presents to people who want to spy on CEOs for commercial or national advantage. Um, he went on to say that, quote, CEOs have wide access to their organization's network resources, the authority to look into most areas, and frequently see themselves as exempt from the inconvenient rules that apply to others. According to Lloyd, this makes them ideal targets. I guess they feel that they're privileged and they don't have to you know, go by the rules like everybody else does. So. However, despite having some fears around security at the very top of the organizations, on the whole, businesses appear to be taking cybersecurity very seriously. Two-thirds of businesses say their cyber incident response plan is well-defined and well-tested, either via real breaches or simulation tests. Now, you got to wonder a little bit. This is a little subjective, right? I mean, the CEO doesn't know what he's doing, but we're good. We got our stuff together, right? We know exactly what's going on. Our plans are in place. I mean, it sounds a little self-serving to me. Three-quarters of firms also report that they have cyber insurance suggesting there's an awareness around preparing for the aftermath of an incident should one occur. And this plays right into last week's episode with the CEO of Secure Systems Innovation Corporation, John Fazzini, and why it's so important to listen to what he has to say. And we were talking about before in the convergence of insurance and, and uh, cybersecurity, and there's tons of money in this business, right? It's big, big business, right? And because it's, it's, it's effective right now, right? And I think they have some great new tools over there. Check them out. In a complex and interdependent world, some attacks are bound to succeed. Organizations must look to a strategy of resilience 
They'll survive only by planning in advance for how the inevitable successful attacks will be handled. And that's as we've mentioned on Rothrock's show on digital resilience. And I just mentioned it before. So good stuff on digital resilience. And they're still uh, preaching over there about that and trying to get people in line. But this speaks to a more broader problem. And that is the company's ability to put the right people at the helm of the information security organization. If you've got a CEO, let me ask you, if you've got a CEO that completely ignores the recommendations of the people that are charged with securing the company from cyber attacks, what kind of faith do you have in their ability to take an interest in making sure that the right person is even chosen for that position in the first place? Right? I mean, at least I, I, I tend to question it, and it certainly begs the question, at least in my mind, especially with the turnover rate in the CISO position that we see today, right? And how CISOs are now being used as the fall guy or fall, fall girl, a gal, right? In the event that the company has a bad day, right? And then we all know everyone's going to have a bad day. It's just the nature of the business and how well these choices and critical decisions are being made will determine, you know, how prepared you are and how you respond to it and, and whether you earn your money on the response, right? So, but I just think that the, the, the CISO position has just come so difficult uh, and there's so much pressure. And I see articles about um, uh, dependence on alcohol and even drugs that sometimes, I mean, it's just because, you know, to get through the stress and the pressure and, the, and, 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 and then what's going on. And I think there's, there's no support and a lot of these people are being used as the fault person in some respects. So I got to agree with Palmer on this one. I didn't think this was the case before. I really didn't a few months ago, maybe like, you know, eight months ago. But more and more, I'm seeing extremely poor decisions being made in a bubble, right? And they have damaging this political posturing that's taking precedence over competent business decisions, I think. And quite frankly, it's just scary. It's scary. It's scary. All right, folks, we got to roll. I think we're over time, way over time. Anyway, before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 